Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about whether or not it's counter-revolutionary to read and write. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I'm doing a solo episode, because I didn't manage to find anyone to do an episode with me this week. So I thought I would just do like a brief commentary episode. It should be pretty simple. The topic I wanted to do was the emergence of writing and accounting, and uh, I asked... Chris, our former co-host and young neocon, many time guest, if they had any insight or information on this, and if they wanted to come on, which neither of them were able to, but they did give me some information. So I got a very good article from Michael Arard that was retweeted by David Wengrow, that's how it got onto our radar. And I thought I would just read through it and offer any comments that I might have. I don't even know if I'm going to have that many. And then I also found another article that this one kind of overturns. That I think I will actually start with. And I'm just going to do a summary of that one because it's an academic article, so it's kind of dry. Basically, there are competing ideas about how writing emerged. To start with, we need to talk about what writing actually is. So, before there was what we think of as writing, which is representing spoken language in graphical form with characters or letters or what have you. There was what's called proto-writing, which is more symbolic and abstract. So the most basic form is just drawing a symbol onto a surface. Anything that isn't like a an ex- like a realistic representation of a thing. And then there is writing a symbol that is abstract enough that other people interpret it as meaning a certain thing. And then there's the character that represents the sound. So making a mark on a surface that has been around for at least 100,000 years. Proto-writing has been around for, I think, a few 10,000 years. It's hard to differentiate it from non-symbolic writing and the earliest examples that are known of that are one is symbols that were drawn on tortoise shell in China and that supposedly has to do with like divination I have no idea how they know that Erard will talk about it in his article so the existing theories of how writing emerged actually theorized that writing emerged as a consequence of accounting. Earlier theories, I think, flipped it around. They said accounting emerged as a consequence of writing. But both of them basically say that writing came about as a consequence of states. So It was either for managing state inventories or relaying orders to other parts of the state. I know Mumford in particular talks about how important writing is to ancient Egypt because they had these coordinated machines of people. And in order to facilitate that, they had to have orders that were followed very exactly. Otherwise, it would all fall apart. So I'll link this first article in the description. It's by Mahmoud Ezamel and Keith Hoskin. It's called Retheorizing Accounting, Writing, and Money with Evidence from Mesopotamia and Ancient Egypt. And this one is about how writing emerged as a consequence of accounting. And the main evidence they cite for that is basically that 
in ancient Mesopotamia, there were physical tokens that were used both as symbols, so a type of proto-writing, and as accounting tools. So they were little egg-shaped things. There was a couple other shapes, too. And they would have notches drawn on them and stuff like that. And the different number of notches would represent different numbers of things. And I think the different patterns of notches would represent different items. And then different shapes of tokens would also represent different items. And so after a while, they apparently started to have interference with the tokens. People would mess with them, I'm guessing, so that they could steal stuff, which uh, I support fully. And so the accountants started sealing them in envelopes, but they're not like paper envelopes like we think of. They're like clay spheres, and the tokens would be baked into them. But the problem with that is in order to check the contents of the envelope, you have to break it open. So after a while, they would take the tokens before they put them in the envelope and press them into the surface of it. And the shape of the indentation would tell them what the tokens were that were inside the envelope. So cuneiform later came about as supposedly an evolution of this practice. Because after a while, they, the accountants figured out they didn't even have to make the tokens and put them in the envelope. They could just draw the symbols onto a surface and then bake it as a tablet and use that instead. And so eventually cuneiform came about as a system of written symbols that actually represented phonemes in the Sumerian language. And that was the first like full-fledged writing system. The only problem with this is it misses a lot of evidence. And so this is what we'll talk about in Michael Errard's article. All right, I'm just going to start reading this. So he says, Recent scholars of the history of writing describe it was first and foremost an administrative tool. According to their administrative hypothesis, writing was invented so early states could track people, land, and economic production, and elites could sustain their power. Along the way, their argument goes, writing became flexible enough in how it captured spoken language to be used for poetry and letters and eventually word games such as Mad Libs and Fortune Cookies. I don't think Fortune Cookies are a, a word game, but okay. The writing state connection sailed out most recently in Against the Grain by James Scott, which is a good book. We talk about it all the time on here. A political scientist at Yale. Oh, that sucks political scientist at Yale whose goal is to overturn the usual story about how civilization came to be. In his book, he draws from accumulated archaeological findings to show that large, sedentary populations and grain agriculture existed long before the first states in both Mesopotamia and China. These operations came to be co-opted by rulers, ruling classes, and elite interests. The elite didn't invent agriculture or urban living but fashioned the oft-told narrative giving them credit for these achievements. In his book, Scott assembles a political counter-narrative to upend their story of progress and show how people were better off when they weren't subjects. Which I still agree with even if writing didn't emerge as a consequence of the state. The counter-narrative needs villains, and writing serves this purpose brilliantly because it's the tool of power that makes subjects subjects. I don't think it's the tool of power that does that. I think it's just an interesting aside to the actual tool that makes people subjects, which is using violence to force them to labor for the state. But anyway, the state is a recording, registering, and measuring machine, writes Scott, and a coercive machine that makes lists of names, levies taxes, rations food, raises armies, and writes rules. 
The coincidence of the pristine state and pristine writing, he writes, tempts one to the crude, functionalist conclusion that would-be state-makers invented the forms of notation that were essential to statecraft. Without writing, Scott argues, there could be no state, and without the state, there could be no writing. He seems to be saying that everything that humans would come to write, myths, epic poems, love letters, essays, reassessments of the history of civilization, was an epiphenomenon of bureaucratic paperwork. I don't really agree with that. I don't think that's a conclusion that was in the book. I mean, I think Scott is very obsessed with standardization. He wrote an entire book on it called Seeing Like a State that I just got in the mail, so I'm going to be reading it soon. But, yes, I think writing is important to states. We can see that even more so now because... We have the super advanced form of writing, which is computing and data storage. And the state collects exabytes of data on people to track everything they do and try and figure out what they think they're going to do in the future to see if they're going to cause problems or if you can sell them dick pills or whatever. So I think writing is important to the state, but I don't think there's anything in the book that says that writing could never have happened without the state and vice versa. I don't think that's a conclusion that he reaches, but it has been a while since I read the book, so maybe I'm wrong. He continues, As far as I'm concerned, however, the evidence suggests otherwise. I come to this defense of writing as an unabashed partisan of text, a diehard literate in an age pivoting to video. I barely watch television. Ooh, look at you which marks me as a Philistine these days. I don't think it makes you a Philistine. I think it makes you a weird, snooty nerd. I think it's kind of like the opposite of being a Philistine. But anyway, every week seems to bring fresh news of a dimmer future for writing, whether it's thanks to AI-curated, voice-operated information interfaces or in the hopes pinned on emojis as a universal writing system. Huh. I mean, emojis are a type of writing, I think. It's especially weird in an article where you say that one of the stages of writing is drawing symbols that everyone recognizes that aren't representative of spoken language. That's what emojis are. They're symbols that everyone recognizes. Okay. And AI-curated voice-operated information interfaces um, I don't think are going to replace writing in any capacity. I frequently tell people that my job is basically creating e-record systems and I have very little hope for the future of e-record systems or at least like I don't I don't think they're a valuable replacement for paper record systems. So I'm actually like kind of a writing partisan as well. Not in the sense that I really hope that writing didn't emerge as a consequence of the state, but just that I think writing on paper is still a superior technology to e-records or any sort of digital storage of writing. Hard drives have to be replaced every two to eight years. They're very delicate. If you drop a hard drive, then there's a good chance that you'll break it and lose a huge amount of data. There is no such issue with paper. People always bring up fire as a hazard in paper storage, but a hard drive can also be destroyed by fire, so that's not really a disadvantage that's unique to paper. Really, the only advantage of digital storage is the amount of physical space it takes up, but the problem with that is when you increase the storage density that tends to have the effect of increasing the amount of stuff that's stored it's sort of like a Jevons paradox for data you can see it with the advent of broadband since I was a tiny child using the internet in 1997 or 98 
we went from 56k internet to now we have gigabit internet i don't have that personally i wish but that's what the like top of the line is basically for for most people and that is about 125,000 times more bandwidth but because of all the extra bandwidth that's available websites will just like stuff more shit into the same website so it kind of like dampens the effect of having a bunch of extra data available to push down the pipe so websites don't really load a ton faster because of all the extra bandwidth that you have because it's just sending so much more stuff and it's kind of the same thing with I mean with like uh, video especially now you can get a 6 terabyte hard drive for like 150 bucks whereas you know back in 2000 that probably would have bought you I don't know 128 kilobyte hard drive or megabyte sorry so it's again like several hundred thousand times more storage but now a movie takes up many times this the amount of space because it's in a much higher resolution they use like lossless audio and stuff like that so basically like the more storage density you have the more stuff they keep and there was there was some story a couple of years ago about how the amount of data that's added to the internet every day is growing at some insane pace. I think that was a plot point in Silicon Valley. There, one of the reasons they did the middle out compression thing is because there was supposed to be like this apocalypse of data storage where people are just generating so much content just like bullshit posts of their nasty dinners and stuff like that that they would like run out of storage space essentially so that's that's another reason I think the advantage of storage that digital storage has um, the space advantage is like not really much of a thing And yeah, the the biggest thing for me is that, it, like, it, first of all, it's hard to make a hard drive unless you have heavy industry powered by fossil fuels. And again, it only lasts like two to eight years, and then you have to swap the hard drive, transfer the data to the new one. And you have to do that for a large data center, like, probably hundreds of times every month. I don't know, I've never worked in a data center, but... I'm sure that someone can confirm it's something like that. Uh, whereas paper records, you almost never have to replace them. They last a very long time. The only worries that you have are fire and water damage, which, again, hard drives have the same issue. But anyway, I don't know why I got on that tangent. So back to the article. Erard says, who needs writing anyway? Seen through the filter of military analogy, writing might be like nuclear weapons, which were developed specifically by the military, or it might be like gunpowder, which was discovered by alchemists, searching for life-prolonging substances hundreds of years before its use in weapons. The question is this, is writing the product of the state in every single stage of its evolution invented de novo by administrative elites? Or is it composed of pre-existing representational practices that expanded to fill the needs of the state and complex society? The evidence suggests that writing is actually more like gunpowder than nuclear weapons. For one thing, in the four wellsprings of writing, it never, as far as we know, sprang forth as fully phonographic, but evolved to become that. There's usually some kind of proto-writing, and some kind of proto-proto-writing. I like to think of writing as a layered invention. First, there's the graphic invention, the notion that of making a durable mark on a surface. Um, this is where I got what I was talking about earlier. Humans have been doing this for at least 100,000 years. 
The bureaucracy didn't give humans that power. Then the symbolic convention. Let's make this mark different from all other marks and assign it a meaning we can all agree on. That's what emojis are, dude. The thing that you were just getting mad at. Humans have been doing this for a long time, too. Then there's the linguistic one. Let's realize that a sound, a syllable, and a word are all things in the world that can be assigned a graphic symbol. This invention depends on the previous ones and is itself made of innovations, realizations, solutions, and hacks. Then comes the functional invention. Let's use this set of symbols to write a list of captives' names, or a contract about feeding workers, or a letter to a distant garrison commander. All these moves belong to an alchemy of life that makes things go boom. I don't like that sentence. That sucked. Uh, when you consider these layers of invention, you discover that early writing in Mesopotamia, for instance, had no overtly political function. As the archaeologist David Wengrow at University College London argues in What Makes Civilization. I started reading that book last night, but then I got distracted, so I didn't get very far into it. But there is a very nice chart right in the beginning that shows the first civilizations in different regions of the earth and what years they came about and like what characterized the different ages of those civilizations and what the important inventions were for those civilizations so i already like the book but i also have like a huge reading list that i need to get through and i shouldn't just start a new book right in the middle of it because then i'll drop the other ones that i'm reading Instead, for the first three to four hundred years of early cuneiform texts in the region, from about 3300 to 2900 BCE. I still don't like that system because it's very Christianized, so I'm just going to say 5300 years ago. Wengro sees a bookkeeping function for managing temple factories of the day. There is hardly any use of writing for what I would view as state-like functions e.g. dynastic monuments, taxation, tribute, narratives of political events, until the early dynastic period, he tells me. This is an even stronger strike against the administrative hypothesis than it looks, because the counting that was the precursor to writing in Mesopotamia didn't need the state to develop. In the 1960s, the archaeologist Denise Schmant, <laughs> Besseret, it's a funny name, began studying clay tokens this is what I was talking about earlier, the accounting tokens. Cylinders, pyramids, discs, balls, thousands of which had been found all over Middle Eastern archaeological sites, though no one had explained what they were. These tokens showed up in Neolithic archaeological sites from 10,000 years ago, well before the earliest states emerged in Mesopotamia. Shmant Besserat, or is it Bessera? I don't know whom I studied with at the University of Texas at Austin in the early 1990s, argued that the tokens went back 10,000 years. She realized that they were markers for objects, one cone per unit of grain, one diamond per unit of honey, and so forth. At first, tokens that denoted goods and objects were stored in groups. One storage method was sealing them into hollow clay balls. To overcome the obvious drawback that the contents of a sealed envelope can't be checked, early accountants pressed the tokens into the soft, wet surface of the envelope. By the fourth millennium, scribes realized that the impressed signs made the envelopes redundant, just press the tokens into the clay, or better yet, create written signs that mimicked tokens. Then, one more step of abstraction completed the journey, create written signs that capture speech sounds and word meanings. The implications are clear, at least for Mesopotamia. Early states functioned without writing for nearly 3,000 years before the invention of cuneiform because they had the token system for counting. And tokens didn't need the conditions of the state to develop. They preceded the state by 2,000 years. How do they know that? What we have is counting that precedes complex economic organization as well as phonetic writing that precedes political functions. Both trajectories undermine the writing-state argument. The administrative hypothesis lacks evidence in other regions where writing developed as well. 
In China, for example, the earliest writing samples, which were divination texts carved into bone and turtle shell, date to approximately 3,300 years ago. But archaeologists don't know whether there was also administrative, propagandistic, or literary writing happening at the same time. And they don't know what preceded the carved word signs, which included names, dates, and items of sacrifice. Though the confident shape and execution of the characters suggests a well-developed scribal class. That in turn points to a complex society. But was this society administered by forms of writing? There's no evidence that it was. To me, having a scribal class is evidence that it was administered by forms of writing. Because how else could you have a non-contributing class that specialized in one thing? I mean, I can understand if the argument is everyone was writing, but it, if the symbols are are extremely regular and all look the same, then it doesn't, it wouldn't suggest to me that it's just like normal people's handwriting, because as we know, like, everyone's handwriting is extremely different, unless you are very specifically trained to have handwriting that's a certain shape. So, I mean, if, like, all of the characters look very consistent and regular, then that points to a specific class, as they said, of people that specialize in writing. And how could you have that without a state or a proto-state? Further mysteries are posed by writing in Mesoamerica. The most prominent examples are Mayan and Zapotec writing, which date to 300 BC and 600 BCE, respectively. So 2300 and 2600 years ago. All the existing examples of Mesoamerican writing are engravings on rock or murals. Writing on other materials, such as palm leaf, were either lost to decay or destroyed by Spanish conquerors. Before phonetic writing, there was iconography, and early writing itself featured leaders, rulers, prisoner-taking, and conquests. Nothing economic or administrative exists. So, like, what were the contents? They don't say that, really. It just says what they are on. Over and over, what we see is that writing is more like gunpowder than like a nuclear bomb. In each of the four sites of the independent invention of writing, there's either no evidence one way or the other, or there's evidence that a proto-writing predated the administrative needs of the state. So does that mean that there's no evidence that full-fledged writing predated the needs of the state? Even in Mesopotamia, a phonetic cuneiform script was used for a few hundred years for accounting before writing was used for overtly political purposes. See, to me, that doesn't actually overturn the hypothesis or the theory that the first paper posed that writing emerged as a consequence of accounting. Because if cuneiform was being used for accounting, first of all, I think that is a political purpose. And second of all, that fits in perfectly with what those authors were saying. So then what Erard is saying is that proto-writing predated the state and didn't emerge because of the state, but if phonetic writing only came about because of accounting, then that fits in with the Isamel and Hoskin theory. As far as the reductive argument that accountants invented writing in Mesopotamia, it's true that writing came from counting, but temple priests get the credit more than accountants do. Why? Priests invented writing as a reduction I can live with. It posits writing as a tool for contacting the supernatural realm, recording the movement of spirits, 
inspecting the inscrutable wishes of divinities. But he doesn't really explain why that is. He says a phonetic cuneiform script was used for a few hundred years before writing was used for overtly political purposes. He doesn't say anything about priests. As it turns out, the popular administrative hypothesis has run into headwinds among other scholars, too. In the afterword to the essay collection, The First Writing, from 2004, Stephen Houston, an anthropologist at Brown University in Rhode Island, concluded that the administrative hypothesis, though tempting, remains hypothetical. Fourteen years later, things are unchanged, especially for Mesoamerica, Houston told me in a recent email. The earliest writing we have appears where we can read it to be resolutely about kings, gods, ritual activities, fetish objects. There are plausible grounds to think they had cadastrals, which are surveys of land to find out what resources there are on them, and I guess who owns them, and the like, which appear in early colonial Mexico, but we just don't have the direct evidence. Writing about kings, gods, rituals, activities, and fetish objects, that sounds pretty political to me. Doesn't sound like accounting stuff. But I would also have to think that, like, if we lost all of the earliest records, if they have paper writing, there's no reason to record inventories on stone. Because they're changing constantly. So if they have accounting related documents why would they why would they be on a permanent surface that doesn't make sense other anthropologists meanwhile have been looking more closely at historical instances where writing emerges outside of the state and where states emerge without writing Piers Kelly a linguistic anthropologist at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Human Evolution in Munich says that the ancient state in Hawaii never used writing, while some non-state small-scale societies did. In fact, various corners of the earth and throughout history, in various corners of the earth and throughout history, inventors have crafted alphabets and syllabaries to resist the state. Okay. I hope they expand on that. Pierce Kelly studies religiously flavored political movements and politically flavored religious movements in Southeast Asia and West Africa, whose charismatic leaders have invented writing systems, often after having been inspired by otherworldly visions. Kelly points out that writing has been reinvented at least nine times in Southeast Asia since the 1840s, mainly by largely non-literate highland people whose way of life was under threat from powerful states. I mean, I think that's, I think creating something in response to a state threatening you is like, or, or like adopting a behavior in response to a state threatening you is kind of behavior created by the state. I have like an example vaguely in mind, the behavior of hunter-gatherer societies that are kind of at the fringe of the state, and that behavior has been attributed to that type of society, but it's really quite a lot in part because they're being increasingly threatened by the state so I, I don't know as a resistance strategy the introduction of rebellious scripts gave impetus to the new movements investing their advocates with authority and rendering marginalized languages literally visible Kelly writes in a forthcoming paper one of my favorite instances of this is a writing system called Pahawa Hmong, invented by Hmong farmer Shang Lu Yang. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. In the late 1950s, when he lived in the mountains of Vietnam. What's remarkable about this is not only that Shang Lu was illiterate, as detailed in the fascinating book The Mother of Writing, by William A. Smalley, Chia Kua Hmong, and Nia Yi Yang. I don't know what those... Oh, those are the other two authors. Okay. But that 
Sean Liu revised his system four times with each revision being more linguistically sophisticated than the last. Sean Liu's invention most certainly did not happen in the context of a state, nor was he a privileged scribe. He was a squirrel hunting basket maker and mountain rice farmer when the writing system was first revealed to him, his believers claimed by two mysterious visitors from heaven. No one else could read or write it. That would come later, after he had taught them. As Shang Lu's case demonstrates, the phonetic achievements of a writing system aren't the only ones worth noting. The French anthropologist Pierre Deleage studies the invention of writing in many cultural contexts and distinguishes unbound forms of writing from bound ones. Unbound writing includes the phonetically flexible, multifunctional information tool called the Latin alphabet that we use to communicate in, say, French or English today. Less familiar is bound writing, which is used to represent narrow types of speaking and often only by a small number of people. An example of bound writing is a Lakota history drawn on a blanket by the Lakota warrior Swift Dog, one of about a hundred known winter counts, which were records of events recorded on buffalo hides. Keepers of the winter counts, usually men, created iconic depictions of the significant events, but these visuals weren't all the same. Another example is the inscription on the Kaskahal block, a slab of serpentine scratched with 62 symbols that was discovered in Mexico in the late 1990s that dates to 2100 years ago making it the oldest writing in the New World, though it's undeciphered. Such text appears similar to shamanic writing devised by religious specialists with tightly restricted revelatory functions, as a team of anthropologists wrote in Science back in 2016. Often, bound forms of writing are used in face-to-face -face contexts alongside spoken language. Deleage notes that they exist in numerous North American indigenous cultures, the Ojibwa, the Lakota, the Navajo, and the Kuna. In South America, the Inca, the Yagua, and the Bolivian Quechua. And in Asia, the Nashi in China, and the Dayak in Borneo. Deleage argues convincingly that to decipher bound text, you must know what it's about and perhaps be an expert in the chant, ritual, or curse, or whatever that it captures. Hardly a useful tool for authoritative control. And, he noted, all of the writing invented in Egypt, Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, and China was bound when it emerged. Let me comment on that. So, they say you have to be an expert in what a bound text captures, which makes it not useful for authoritative control. I don't really see how that is. How... What is supposed to be the use of it? The use of it is supposed to be keeping records of things for the state, like keeping records of inventories, of contracts, which we know for a fact contracts very often are not written in a language that the other person understands. I think a bounded language being used for that is more likely there were slaves who signed contracts that in a language that they literally didn't even fucking speak and then even now there's legal language is its own domain language and most people don't understand a lot of the terms and even if it's written in English and you are a native English speaker and have a very extensive vocabulary, some of the words simply mean a completely other thing in the context of a legal document than in the context of everything else. Even if we go beyond contracts, if you're transmitting written orders and you have a scribe class, like if you have two experts in a bounded written language, then you can put them in two different places and send an order from one to the other and they can interpret it and then deliver the spoken version of it to whoever else is in the command structure and you know point b so i don't think 
bounded language necessarily means it's anti-authoritarian or that like having a bounded language means it couldn't have been part of the state. Eventually, bound writing can become unbound in the interests of the state, whether to further royal politics, run an economy, fund the elite, or all three. A huge range of state needs can pressure people to expand what they need writing for, and thus unbinding can carry the force of invention, even if it's strictly speaking not one. Suddenly, names must be written, local ones as well as foreign ones, along with the names of captives from military forays. Places where trade goods come from must be recorded, and legal contracts must be drawn up, along with standardized lists and letters to distant garrison commanders. And then someone realizes that if a letter can contain military orders, it can also contain sweet nothings. All these are perpetuated among the elite literate class via scribal schools, where lists of terms are standardized and transmitted across generations. On one level, those of us who write and read owe the state a debt of gratitude. The deep history of your poetic form, your contracts, and your epitaph might lie in scrawls on a cave wall, or lists of royal ancestors, some of them divine. But the achievement of unbound writing stems from the needs and prerogatives of government in the end. As a writer of nonfiction, I can't help but love writing's roots in enumerating concrete objects and reality itself. The textual analyst part of me loves how Mesopotamian tokens were wrapped in clay envelopes after being impressed on the soft exterior. Perhaps clay-wrapped tokens of meaning gives rise to the notion that text is both a surface and an interior, and that's what leads us to talk so relentlessly in English and other languages about what is in a given text. The poet in me wants to repurpose the heavy thumb of authority's use of writing on behalf of the powerless. The linguist in me recognizes the cognitive significance of the layers of writing's invention, none of which the brain was evolved to do specifically, but with which we have co-evolved. And as a partisan of text, I know its deep history won't ever be erased. So I think after the second read-through there that I've done... Oh, there is a date on this article. Okay, I was looking for it forever. 6th of July 2018 is when that article's from. I think on the second read-through, I agree with it less than I did the first time, and I think it's because I've had more time to think about it, and um, more focused on commenting on it this time. I would try to put more in this episode, but it hurts my voice a lot more to do a solo episode. <laughs> I'm usually a pretty quiet person, and uh, so I don't talk for 45 minutes straight normally. So I'll just leave it at that. I might do a part two if I find anything else interesting, but I kind of have had trouble finding sources on this because, well, mainly because the word writing is extremely common in scholarly papers. <laughs> so if I just search like stateless people writing or stateless people written or anything like that, it just brings up random papers about any anything to do with stateless people and then state same thing it's just not very easy to to search this specific topic but i'll keep trying and god i had a plan for the next episode but i can't remember what it is i still want to do one on the edict on maximum prices which is a roman law that is very often cited by economists and libertarians who want to talk about how futile it is to issue price controls because it, of course, according to them, caused the downfall of their economy, <laughs> as they would say. And I wanted to do, I mean, I want to do more political economy episodes for a while, but I also really want to do an episode on Golden Kamui. And I think I can make that like a mixed type of episode because it has a lot of stuff about the Ainu people. One of the main characters is Ainu. And we see an Ainu village and like meet some of the people that live there. And there's a lot about Ainu culture in it. And so if you don't know, the Ainu are like indigenous 
people to Hokkaido, which is the northern island of the Japanese island chain. So it's between the main Japanese island and Russia. So they're kind of like ethnically a sort of mix between Southeast Russian people and South Asian people and Japanese people. And I think I can do uh, an interesting episode on how basically the line between a settler state and a state in general is very blurry and all how all states basically are settler states because they all conquer indigenous and stateless societies and either kill them all off or force them to assimilate into the state so there's quite a bit about that in the show so far i'm only on episode like six and there is two seasons and the third season is coming out in october so i think october would be a good time to um do that episode but yeah i'm gonna keep trying to think of some good political economy topics and try and get off my ass about doing research on them so that i can fill out the episode more and actually get guests if anyone has any suggestions on who i should get as a guest or what i should do as a topic dm the neighbor science account on twitter or you can send an email to neighborscience at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.